Hey, Meg and Dr. G here for SPKN Special Guest Saturday, and we are so very lucky to have with us today one of college lacrosse's legendary coaches, Mr. Bill Tierney. Coach Tierney has been coaching for 36 years and has obtained seven national championships. He is only the second coach ever to achieve 27 regular season and conference tournament titles and has won over 100 games. But my absolute favorite highlight, of course, is that in 1985, during his first year as head coach of the John Hopkins men's soccer team, the team made it to the NCAA tournament. And I'm told that this was achieved despite the fact that Bill has absolutely no previous soccer background. Coach Tierney, I can't wait to hear this story. And it is an honor to have you on the show with us today. Welcome to SPKN. No, thank you, Megan. Uh, Brian, thanks for having me on. I always love doing these things, especially, you know, when there's that attachment to DU at, at heart. And, uh, you know, it's nice to talk about your past and everything and uh, hopefully talk about some some successes in the future as well. Well, the, the first thing you've got to talk about is the this soccer. That's an amazing thing to be able to take them to the NCAA tournament. Tell me a little bit more about that. So what happened was I was... Uh, you know, I was a football coach. In fact, I, I had uh, kind of reached my my lifetime goal of being the head football coach at my high school. And then my best friend, who was the lacrosse coach up at RIT in, in Rochester, New York, left there late in, in an August to go to Ithaca College. And so somehow, some way, they talked the athletic director into hiring me. And so my wife and I went up to Rochester, New York in January of 1982 and lasted, you know, two and a half, three years there. But then the Johns Hopkins assistant job opened in, in the spring of 84. And I had, interestingly enough, my, the goalie who had played for me in high school, Larry Quinn, was now at Hopkins. And somehow he talked the, the, the coach into to talking to me. Well, they had a great old AD there named Bob Scott. And Bob was a wonderful man. And he said to me, well, I'm in a dilemma here. I really have to hire somebody to be our head soccer coach. So I kind of told a little white lie. I said I had a little soccer background. I, I did score the winning goal in our sixth grade championship in uh, Levittown Elementary Schools. And I did share my office with the soccer coach at RIT. So I thought that was enough. And so uh, Bob said, all right, the, the good news was, and I've made my career on, on you know, taking over programs that had hit in some hard times. And this one, was, I thought, was the easiest. They had only had one winning year in 50 years of soccer at Johns Hopkins. So I figured, I, you know, how can I do any worse? And so Bob hired me. And you know, my first year, we, we were like seven and nine. And then we went 14 and three, and then 14 and three again. And then that third year, we, we won our conference, won the state championship, and then were invited to the NCAA tournament. And in fact, that was the thing that the people at Princeton subsequently to that say that helped me get the Princeton job after that was more because they hoped I know knew a little bit more about lacrosse uh, than I did about soccer. And if I could do that in soccer, hopefully we could revive the Princeton lacrosse program. You, you want to pause and talk about that a little bit? Because I, I know, right, I, there was a different period of time where it wasn't uncommon that college coaches still would coach more than one sport. So how do you go about, you know, taking over soccer? You know, you've got your coaching background and you've got a phys ed background, but where do you start coaching something that you hadn't coached really before? It's a great question, Brian. I got to tell you, it's probably my most honest moment in my life was that first meeting with the soccer team at Johns Hopkins, where I literally had to say to those kids, I, I know nothing about soccer. 
And so you're going to have to deal with me. They were a bunch of pre-med and engineering guys. Hopkins has a unique situation. They're division one in lacrosse, but they're division three in every other sport. So these were kids that were there for their education and happened to be some pretty good soccer players there. I said, so, you know, you're going to have to help me through the, the coaching part and the skill part of soccer. You know, there's two things I'll do well. I'll recruit. And I'll give great halftime speeches and motivate you and, and get you in shape. So I guess it was three things. So I, we, we did that pretty well. And, and the kids bought in. They kind of actually, if you threw that, you know, a lot of years later from some, you know, 40 years later, you know, all kids now think that they should be, you know, tell the coach what to do. And it, w- it was really, uh, it really helped me in my coaching career to really be humbled by 18 to 22 year olds. And yet, have I think it helped them to know that someone was there that trusted them to to help him along as well so it was a great symbiotic relationship and and they were a great group of kids and as I said it was a really really humbling yet satisfying and enjoyable experience I'm connecting right because you coach high school football before that as well and usually football coaches are very you know aggressive almost authoritarian you know, they're, they're constantly telling people where to go, how to line up, how to move, you know, and every little inch and step matters. And then you go out to soccer practice, though. And, and <laughs> well, I was that exact football coach. So, you know, yeah, I was yeah. that guy. I loved coaching offensive football, calling up plays. And, you know, in football, it, there's probably on game day, it's probably the most the sport that has the most impact from coaches on game day, because you're calling every play, usually about an, you know, an average of every 10 or 15 seconds. And so all of a sudden you get to soccer or you get to lacrosse or you get to, you know, even basketball where your coaching is done during the week. You know, yeah, you call timeouts and you make some key decisions when the kids are on the sideline, but it's pretty free flowing and 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 you hope that you've prepared them well enough to make those decisions on the field. Whereas in football, it's 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 my decision after my decision after my decision. So that part was was tough. And I remember the first game, the referee telling me to sit down. I didn't know that soccer coaches sat down. I, th- I thought they ran up and down the sideline like lacrosse coaches, you know. So it, it was it was a very interesting experience. But again, I, I think uh, that football mentality took me a while to get out of. Yeah. Did that inform your coaching in both scenarios, right? Did you did you you know learn some things and then adapt it to football or vice versa? You know. No question, no question, and and I thought that the uh, even the even to the soccer in the practice parts, we had some some standard you know rules, I guess you'd call them, that I used from lacrosse and football that that carried forth. They were different. Like one of the, just an example in lacrosse, we tell the guys one of the advantages is you know in lacrosse there's 15 yards behind the goal line and the end line and so you've got a lot of room to work back there in soccer you don't have that the goal line is the end line but just for instance in lacrosse I know we we always tell the guys when in doubt get the ball behind the goal because now the defense has to turn and look behind the goal and lots of things can happen behind them that can be good scoring opportunities so what we did was kind of instituted in soccer there that before you cross the ball you had to get within five yards of the end line because that kind of created a similar scenario you know things like that we did uh 
we put high pressure in lacrosse. They call it a ride when the other when the other team's defense gets the ball and you put pressure on it. In hockey, it's called forechecking. And you know, in, in soccer, uh, I don't know what they call it, but we did it. You know, we put a lot a lot of pressure on there, and and it seemed to work. So, yeah, all those all those kinds of things did carry over, and and certainly from that soccer background to lacrosse again, it was not so much X's nose, but more of the whole, the whole listening to other people. I think that's what's helped me with assistant coaches, listening to other people's opinions and knowing that, you know, your way isn't always the, the only way. I'm, I'm real curious too, is from a coach development stance, if you can speak to right, cause you've got a great phys ed background and that's where you start at in college. If you can think about, how you developed as a coach, you know, and what were those kind of key lessons or opportunities that you sought out to learn? You know, was that tactical X's and O's right away? Was it more techniques, physical, you know, social, emotional, psychological, you know, can you speak just briefly about how you got started in at the university as well as then how you developed yourself and how you prioritize your education until today? Well, it's that's an impactful question for my life anyway, because when I grew up, coaches were had so much impact on me as a young person from the time I was eight, 10 years old in every sport I played. My older siblings were athletes and and I couldn't get enough. I grew up in a place where there was 42 kids on a block that had 20 houses. It was post-World War II, baby boomers. So you were playing everything. But the impact, I noticed at a young age, the impact came from my coaches. And so I always wanted to be a coach. And back then, the way you were a coach was you had to be a teacher. And the way, you, you know, I knew I wasn't going to be a history teacher or a math teacher. So I, I wanted, I became a phys ed teacher because two guys, my, my two favorite high school coaches, most impactful guys in my high school career were my phys ed teachers and high school coaches. So with that leading in to, as you mentioned, Brian, my physical education background at Cortland State, you learn so much, you know, people, when, when, you know, people sometimes smirk when you say you're a phys ed major. And I think people who have been through it understand that it's not just the learning how to play badminton and go bowling. It's, it's, it's physiology of exercise. It's kinesiology. It's anatomy and physiology. It's movement based. It's understanding. And in my era, it was just about the time where people were starting to accept weightlifting. When I was in high school, they told you don't lift weights. It hurts you, you know? And so the teaching classes, oftentimes I, I speak at, at, at group things, I, I, you know, and from what I learned from teaching, just simple things like when a person in the first row asks a question, don't just answer that question to that person, repeat the question so that the people in the back rows, it might be, I've spoken to 2000 people at a time, one time, you know, and so they better understand what the question is, or, or it's, you might as well be speaking a foreign language. So learning all those things, eye contact, getting to know people's names as best as you can, you know, the, the accordion type teaching methods of, of bringing the group together. Now go do it, bring them together. Now grow, do it, go do it because, and we've changed even since then, all I learned back then, we all, people now all say, well, kids have changed. Well, I think our teaching has had to change. 
change. And we, we use here at, in our lacrosse program a four-step teaching method, which is number one, we do what we always used to do is draw it on a board, right? Now it's a whiteboard and it used to be a blackboard, but that's number one. And then number two, we, we show it on film. And then number three, we do it in, in what we call skeleton. So if it's an offensive thing, no defense. If it's a defensive thing, we put cones out and no no offense. And then finally, live action. And, and, and we film again. And so I think learning the fact of how to teach, uh, how to how to learn skills that that you you clearly didn't have when you when you came. I mean, you had to you had to take so many skill courses, and then learning those those really intricate things about you know physiology and stuff like that. It, it was it was a challenge. It was a challenge, and I remember I, I, my. My junior year was probably, in, I was in the best shape of my life. And unfortunately, I wasn't doing real well in physiology of exercise. So I went to the professor and I said, you know, Professor Tomek, I'll never forget his name. Uh, what can I do to help me get through this class? He said, I'll make you a deal. Next lab, come in in your gym clothes. So I said, okay. And, and that was, those were the days where you, you had, we had treadmill, but they had this, they, when they were measuring O2 and CO2 intake and output, they didn't have the machinery we have now. So you had this big bub, plastic bubble thing. They put this mouthpiece in you. You could hardly breathe anyway. And he put me on a treadmill and he said, if you can make it to 17 minutes, I'll give you a C. So I said, you know, and all my buddies are in the class circled around. They know I'm going to die here. Right. So, so I start running and I'm in great shape. And I don't know if he didn't notice that, or maybe he was just giving me a break, but I get to about 17 minutes and I'm still doing well. Back then you had to crank the things up so that the tilt in the, you know, in the treadmill went up and you could turn the speed up a little bit. So all of a sudden now I'm going, it's 19 minutes and I'm going uphill. Now it's 20 minutes and I'm really going uphill. Finally, I'll never forget this. At 22 minutes, he shuts the thing off and he goes, damn it, you're getting a B in the course. And that was it. That's how I earned my B in physiology of exercise. I couldn't understand the test, but I, but that's how I got my B. And, and that's, you had professors like that back then, you know? And so I learned a lot from my phys ed background and then got to use that. I taught phys ed from kindergarten all the way through high school in those years before I got my college job. And you you learned a lot about handling different ages. That was the years where they just started to give kids choices of what they wanted to take in phys ed. And so yeah, you had to teach some things that you had to refer back to those years in college on you know what your grip was in tennis and things like that. So it was a real, plus the fact that at Cortland, I learned how to play lacrosse because I had never played before. So that changed my life in so many ways. With all the changes over the years in coaching, how do you keep kind of updated? I, I think the key, Meg, is to, number one, know that you're getting older and the kids are getting younger, seemingly, and, and you got to, you know, every generation has hated the music of the generation before that, and, and every generation has have used the term, oh, kids these days, and, you know, we all know that. We heard that from our dads, from our grandfathers, and, and, and now they're hearing it from us. But I think one of the things that really helped me was just my my first 14 years at Princeton, I had 14 different second assistants. Now, my one assistant stayed with me all through my time there. And thank God for him, David Metzbauer, who's now down at North Carolina. But we had 14 different young people that came in to see if they really wanted to be coaches or not. And it was fun going through those years of listening to their input. 
But I think mostly is that respect and, and understanding that you don't, there's not only one way to skin the cat. And, and as you get older and more experienced in coaching, you start to realize that your hard and true ways aren't going to be hard and true every year. You know, that the, the quality of coaching in, in our sport, and I know all sports, has gone up drastically. Young people used to come into coaching because they didn't have anything else to do. Now they're coming in because it's a great career. They know they can make a, they can make a, you know, a, a whole lifetime out of it. But that means studying film, uh, listening to the older guys and, and working on their thing. I, I saw a quote a couple of years ago, it, we were talking about how I always, I'm a defensive coach, how I always like to win nine games, nine to seven. And now we'd li like to win them 15 to 13. And some, of course, social media now, can you're up on a, you're, you're in a spotlight all the time. And I remember one guy writing, see, even Tierney can't coach his own defense anymore. So, you know, what you got to learn is just to, to be flexible, to, to go with the growth and, and the culture of the young people and to make sure that you listen to your assistant coaches because they, they, they really are impactful in, in how to deal with young men. I think I've certainly had some coaches that have gotten kind of stuck in the way that they coach. So it's, I think it's wonderful when, especially mentorship, you know, we know that it works in one direction really well, but it's, it's wonderful when both sides are benefiting from, from the relationship. That's when it really makes a big difference. What about communication with the, and connection with the athletes that do you find that you've learned different tricks and, and different ways in which you can connect with with each generation or does it change that much over the years well i think and we're hearing this more and more finally is that it's not the kids who have changed it's the, it's the parents and so uh you know we are dealing with a generation that has not even if they've lost every game that they've ever played in they've never experienced failure because right at the end of that game it was the coach's fault, the referee's fault, the, you know, the weather's fault, the field's fault, the ball wasn't blown up enough, whatever it might be. And so that, that, that going through failure, I think, is one of the greatest things about sports. I, I don't like to lose, but, you know, you, you, you know, you get better from failure, even if it's just a, not being able to do a skill well. So I, I think that that part has changed a little bit, but, but adjusting to them, what we've also learned is that young people, even though they want to hear why a lot, and that's helped us in our coaching, we don't, we don't even let them ask why, because we tell them why bef before we start teaching them the skill. This is, you know, we're going through some stuff now in the fall here at Denver, where we're working in small cohorts because of the pandemic. And we're explaining to them that we're working in these partial groups, you know, three on three, two on two, uh, you know, lacrosse is played in a half. Once, once you get to one end of the field, it's, it's a six on six game. And so learning those small parts and putting it together, I've always, I've normally been a, you know, the teaching methods of uh, going back to phys ed is, is whole to part or part to whole. I've always kind of been a whole to part back to whole again method of showing them the big picture, showing them the little skills, and then get reviving the big picture again. And I've changed that now. I'm, I'm now forced by the pandemic and forced by the learning skills of, of young people now. We are definitely part to whole and maybe have to go back to part again a bunch of times, but back to whole again. And I think it's been, I think it's, it's, it's kind of been effective. I may have told you this story before, but 
a couple of years ago, we had a young man come to me and say, I, you know, can we play music while we, while we stretch today? And I said, you know, I've been coaching 30 something years. I don't, I don't think so. And he said, Oh, come on coach, please. And he was one of my favorite kids. He wasn't a great player, but he was one of the favorite all time teammates I've ever coached. So I said, all right, Grant, we'll give it a shot. So he came, they came out of the locker room that day and he told the whole team, he was so excited that he talked me into this, came out this, this little thing that I, I started laughing. I said, is that your speaker? You know, like, go ahead, blast it. You know, little did I know that the thing could rock all the way to Wash Park and back, you know? And so all of a sudden the music goes on and the kids are stretching. And in my mind, it is not music. It is total noise and it is loud. And, and finally I said, no, more. turn it off, turn it off. So he turns it off and I thought it was over. The next day he comes back in my office. I said, what are you doing here? And he goes, can we give it one more try? And I said, I don't know, Grant, that was pretty bad. He goes, no, we'll make the music better. I promise, I promise. I said, okay, we'll give it one more try. One stipulation is I get a song, you get a song, I get a song, you get a song. So he said, okay, that sounds fair. So we recorded, uh, what do they call it? A playlist, I guess is what they call it now. So. I gave him my songs and he was the only one who knew this. So he takes it out there and effort. So I said, the first one when they're stretching was their song. And it was better than the day before, clearly, but not something I'd listen to it at night at home alone. That's for sure. And it was loud and it was quick and a lot of boinging around and stuff. But the next song was my song and it was Hey Jude by the Beatles. And it was seven minutes of just the most droll kind of slow tempo music. We got about halfway through and the, one of the other captains stood up. He said, no more coach, no more music. I said, okay. And, and I, you know, I kind of chuckled, but I got my way. <laughs> you know, that was the way it was. So I think, I think just letting them know nowadays that you love them. We use the word love around here a lot. We, we hug them, we kick them. You know, when the last, the last thing I say to any, any young man's parents before he commits to come into Denver and we commit a spot to him is uh, I need your the permission from your parents to do two things. Number one is kick you in the butt when you need it. And number two is give you a hug when you need it. And every kid needs both. And they need to, you need to just make eye contact each day or, or if you miss one or two, you know, every day, cause we have a big team, you know, just make sure you pat them on the back. Those little touches mean so much to them. And, and just tell them that it's okay once in a while uh, that they made a mistake. And I had a kid the other day, a really good player for us. He was just playing terribly the other day and he was getting angry with himself. And I, I, I you know, I, I said to him, I said, listen, there's nothing you can do about those two things. You, you were really bad doing those two things. But if you pound your stick on the ground and you get all upset, you'll never do a good one. I said, try to think about succeeding in the next one. And I've never, you know, I, I don't do that a lot. But luckily for me, the other kids heard it. And he took a shot and nailed it, put it right in the top corner of the net. And he kind of looks at me and, you know, I, you know, I kind of, I kind of give him the old saying, I was, yeah, see, the old guy still knows a, a few things, you know, and, and so they kind of, whenever you can get a little bit of a smile out of these guys, you know, you, you've, you've meant something to them that day. So I try all those little things and, and, and keep adaptive and flexible is how we go about our business. I think that's what's allowed me to kind of stay somewhat successful in the game. When you were in college, you probably didn't have a sports psychology class. No. I mean, what you just talked about, too, in terms of attentional focus and shifting somebody from, hey, 
you can't control the past, control the future, control your attitude and refocus and just go do it again. I mean, it's easier said than done, but that's one of the typical things that we teach nowadays in a sports psych mental skills class. Yeah, the sports psychology back then in that situation was, hey, quit being a crybaby. If you don't like it, get the hell out of here. You know, yeah. and then and that was it. Or your teammates would say, what, what's wrong with you? You know, so, it, yeah, it was it was psychology, but I'm not sure it didn't damage a few uh, brain cells up here back then. Yeah. Well, I mean, right. And I, I coach football and play college football and you get a coach that starts yelling at you to, you know, to focus, focus, or focus. you just do it again, do it again. And you know, something is obviously not working. Right. And, you know, having a coach just yell at you and say something they're like, hey, this is not, I'm, I'm trying to learn, but obviously we're stuck in this mindset where it's not effective. Right, right. Yeah, what's the saying about repeating the same mistake over and over again is not improvement? You know, that's for sure. Try to solve the problem the same way over and over again. Exactly. You know, you're, you're crazy or something. We're not, I'm not saying it right either, but it's the definition of insanity. Yeah. I always yeah. found it funny when my coaches would say, well, you, you got to pay attention. It's like, oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Helpful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If only I thought of that. <laughs> it's, it's great stuff. Us, us coaches, we have some beautiful things that we say, you know, my hope is that, you know, I had a, I had, uh, you know, a, a course, a stunts and tumbling course in college. And there was a 72 year old professor, Prof Holloway. And that was during the Vietnam time. And it, I see the Vietnam time as, kids were very similar to they are now. They were a little more angry back then because they were worried about getting drafted and going, going to Vietnam, but they were also very inquisitive like they, like they are now. And uh, we would, you had to pass this course, you had to do a standing back flip and a running front flip. One of the guys, you know, was a real wise guy he goes, Hey, prof, what do we, you know, what does it matter if we can do it as long as we, you know, the, the kids do it in the class. And he goes, I'll show you young man. And he takes off his whistle, takes off his hat, hands him to me. I happen to be sitting, standing next to him. He backs up and takes a run. And 72 years old, does a running front flip, lands square on his feet. And he goes, so you can be a good teacher. You know, and then and it was just so impactful, you know, like, all right, this is what we're in for. This isn't just uh, jumping jacks, you know, and it was, it was pretty cool. It was a great moment. And when's the last time you've done that after a big win or? <laughs> now those days, uh, it is funny though, when I was teaching, I got this public school teaching job and the, 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 the boys phys ed teacher who was there before me loved gymnastics, but he had like a 12 week, you know, program of gymnastics and the kids got, you know, it got tiresome. And, and so I invented things like, you know, we do leave the gymnastics equipment up not for 12 weeks, more like for three weeks, but we do, you know, obstacle courses and, 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 you know, stunts and tumbling type tricks and stuff. So, you know, I remember one, one guy I had a, I had a show, it wasn't quite a running front flip, but I could do a, I could do a running front handspring back then. And that, that, that kind of settled them in pretty well. But then again, I was only like 26 years old back then, not 72. My senior year of high school, I did a senior project where I coached or I taught middle school phys ed. I was the helper to our phys ed teacher in middle school. <laughs> and he would, he would absolutely demolish everybody in ping pong. There were, there were two ping pong courts set up always, always in the back of the gym. Right. And he would just demolish you. And then in high school, I had, I remember Mr. Dunlap, Mr. Dunlap would demolish everybody in badminton. 
he could he could place a birdie wherever he wanted to on the court. And then actually, too, in grad school, we had a world champion badminton. Uh, was the director of the phys ed program at Tennessee. Right. And you would play badminton. And we're all in our 20s, and we're all great, you know, athletes. And it, this guy is, you know, 55 or so. And every shot was a kill shot. And he, he would just make you run around the entire room. <laughs> and Toy just like, oh, he's just totally playing with you. But, you know, you had so much kind of respect and, like, regard for, like, these guys that were just insane, you know. Uh, Right. And, and, and they're 20, 20, 30 years older than you, and you're just getting smashed. Yeah, I know. And it's the same in coaching. I remember my first high school football game, we're playing a crosstown rival, and we're walking off the field at halftime. And my two coaches, who I've alluded to a bunch, I was walking behind them, and we were losing seven to six at the time. And I remember hearing the head coach look at the other coach going, we got this thing. And I'm like, whoa, you know, this is our first game. We were supposed to be great this year. We're already losing to the Crosstown rival. And, you know, we went in at halftime and made some adjustments. I, I don't even remember what we did, but we came out and we, we ended up winning the game 40 to 21. And, I, and, and it stuck in my head, the impact that he had. He was so confident and, and, and the changes he made. And it's just like that, you know, you gain res such respect for these people. And then I got to coach with them and then replace them later on, which of course was, was pretty cool. An athlete that you really wanted to reach, but just were, were not able to do it. Sure. I, you know, there, there are, and there are, there are, you know, failures in our profession. Our profession is one where people look at scoreboard, unfortunately, and, and there are plenty of coaches that are great coaches who have been fired because the scoreboard hasn't worked for them. You know, they've lost a lot of games, but maybe nobody knew about the success stories they had with individual young men, getting them from maybe a rough home life or maybe, maybe help them with their studies or whatever it might be, or, you know, all the different trials and tribulations you go with 18 to 22 year olds. And, and it's, it's the opposite. I, I've been blessed to, to have been a part of a lot of winning teams and all that stuff. But it's, I think when you, it's just like when you win and, and lose some, the losses feel greater emotionally than the wins do when you look back on them. But, and it's the same when you lose, when you lose one. You know, I'm very proud of the fact that I've never cut in all these years, I've never cut a young man that I've recruited unless, unless they've, screwed around with alcohol or drugs or just didn't do well in school, you know, you know, or misbehaved socially, obviously. And even those guys that, that have been in quote, uh, you know, in quotes, pretty easy to throw off the team because they, you know, it takes a lot, you know, and to be honest, you still hurt by it because you feel like you've let them down, the family down. We, we take kids in now that we know, and I have to go to admissions and say, this is a little bit of a challenge. This is going to be one we're going to all have to keep our eye on, whether it be academically or maybe he's had some, you know, family issues or whatever. But what supersedes those ones you've lost are those ones that you've been successful with that have been the risks. You know, we had a young man here at Denver, Jeremy Noble, who was my first year here. I had to go over to Tom Willoughby, who was the admissions director back then, and begged Tom to let Jeremy in and he said, Bill, I, I just don't know. It's not that I don't like the kid. He's a good kid, but I, I don't know if he'll make it here. And I said, Tom, we'll take care of him. I promise you we'll take care of him. And, and we did. And then all of a sudden it clicked for Jeremy and graduated with a 3-3, one of our best players ever, one of our best captains and leaders ever. And those kind of stories, 
make you, you don't forget the failures, but at least make you say to yourself, see, I, we can still do this, you know, on that side as well. And, and you take great pride in that. And the ones that have those rough home lives, uh, you know, we've had so many crazy situations, not just here at Denver, but all, in all my coaching career from, you know, divorces and deaths and families and all that stuff. When you, when you sit down with them and, and they understand that you can take that coach's hat off, you know, that football coach who told you what to do every play, that you can be, you can have, that you do have feelings and you're with them and you call them up. I just had a young man, I had a call. I called 15 minutes before we got on because he, you know, he, he's had to go see a doctor for something pretty serious. And you know, he couldn't thank me enough for the phone call, you know, and that to me, that's, that's what you should do. But to him and his family, that was just above and beyond. And that's, you have to do that stuff. I'm, I'm wondering now, as you, as you brought it up to the, you know, and I can't take off my faculty professor hat, you know, what do you think of the ethics of college admissions and the interaction with sports and athletics that, that, you know, at times, and you tend not to at least hear about them as much with lacrosse, but you see a lot with football or basketball, you know, that they're getting unqualified kids in school and that they're really, and then they put them in a sham class. You know, it, it, it's a, it's a sticky situation. And we talk about it in class, you know, what are you going to do about it? Yeah. It's, it, it, it's a dilemma certainly because, you know, as a coach, as I said, we're all, we're all measured by the wins and losses. And, and we all think that, every 17 year old is going to save our careers. And we, what we realize very quickly, whether you're teaching about this stuff as you guys do, or you, or they're on the field, you're going to have failures and going to have successes. It's interesting now with recruiting, people often ask me about recruiting now with the pandemic. I actually think we're getting to know the kids even better now through the zoom calls and, and because they can't come to campus and, and come into your office and show them around. But I do think overall, when, it, when the coaches start, realizing, uh, and this is why I might have, I might have people who disagree with me, but this is why I'm against paying student athletes because I, I look at their value, the value they get, especially these kids that get full scholarships, which are none in lacrosse, basically. Um, everybody forgets they're getting an education. Now I think if you go back and that's a free education, which in, in a lot of places, as we know dearly, that's worth, you know, $300,000 over four years. Now, we also know that some of those some of those kids are taking those courses where they're basically the tutors taking their tests for them or the courses, they get an A for spelling their name right or, or showing up and all that stuff. And I, I understand paying that young man because he's basically, he's not, lear he's not learning enough to have a degree that, that, means anything when he when he gets out it's just like use them spit them out and on with the next guy so i think there's a huge gap in that i'm thankful that i eventually ended up in the lacrosse coaching world because i think for the most part even though we have you know two great pro leagues now we're talking about guys that might make thirty thousand a year in a pro league for two or three years and then realize that his college education is going to you know give him the rest of his life but we're not talking about guys who are going to be making millions. You know, even even here where some of our hockey players, you know, do sign those big contracts, that's far and few between. And those kids, those guys learn from David Carl and his staff a lot of great lessons in life and, and learn how to get that degree. And uh, so it's, it, it's a dilemma. And that's why we have to stress as coaches at places like DU and all the colleges, 
for the most part are, are looking in the right direction, that guy is, you know, you got to get your degree first. This is the most important part. When I'm in recruiting, I often give recruits the hint when they're in another coach's office or on a Zoom call now with another coach, even if you're not even interested, tell the coach you want to be a doctor or you want to be an engineer and watch his eyes. And I tell the parents this, watch his eyes. And when his head goes down or his eyes roll back or he kind of rubs his face and says, you know, that's awful difficult. Don't go play there because that means that he is not willing to go along your journey, your academic journey, which if we're even half caring as coaches, we know that that's the most important thing they're getting out of college. Yeah, they'll learn some lessons from us through the years. They'll learn from their teammates through the years. They'll have some downs, they'll have some ups, but ultimately without that meaningful degree, then they're wasting their time. And if a coach doesn't allow a kid to be a doctor or an engineer, or at high business end school or something like that, then then he always he cares about him as being a good lacrosse player. And that that's pretty shallow. And just to clarify for anybody that's going to be listening, right? Because there are college coaches or the, you know, they put it off on an academic counselor that will track athletes into the so-called easy majors. And and the coaches often discourage a challenging major because they feel it'll take them away, take the athletes away from investing all of their time and energy into the sport. Especially the sciences, you know, you have all those extra labs and it, it gets hard with scheduling, but. Yeah, no question. And I, and I think it's the recognition of the coach to say, you know, in our sport, in a football, you know, it's, if you don't recognize that five days a week of practice for one game a week, can be pretty mundane and that if a kid is going to organic chemistry lab and God forbid shows up late to your practice by a half hour for two of those days a week, everything's going to be okay. Because usually those are the kids. And I always say this, the kids who are taking the hardest stuff or even the kids who work hardest in areas, in other areas. I mean, we have here at Denver, you guys know this, we have this great construction management major. Those guys work hard hard and and yet so anybody that'll work hard in their academic major they never get in trouble they always give you everything they've got on the field and they care so much about their teammates it's the ones that they kind of skate off and just oh i'll get my degree in, in a meaningless major i just want to play those are the guys that cause you the problems because they, they got too much time on their hands and what they're doing here isn't as meaningful as it is for those guys that are taking the, the toughest courses are you saying it's phys ed majors like us that are the problems? No, because I think I know how hard I had to work, you know, so. And, and I think it's along that same line as that construction management guy is that I think a lot of if you look at phys ed majors, they're one of the rare group that kind of has an idea at 17, 18 years old what they want to do. Whereas a lot of kids will say, I'll say to them, well, what, what are you thinking about? And they'll say, I'm not sure maybe business, maybe science, maybe, you know, and they have no idea. And, and, and so I do think the kids who have so, a little more focus are the ones that, whether, no matter what the major, are the ones that, that are going to be going through their academics pretty well. I, think, I, I mean, the, the phys ed majors, especially if you're going into coaching and you kind of have that mindset and you're like, I really want to pursue this and I, and I love coaching and sports and being around people and I don't want that desk job. 
You know, that's the, that's, <laughs> exactly. those, are, those are the ones that are really kind of locked in. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we do a thing here at Denver. We, it drives our strength coaches a little crazy because it's, it's outside the realm of, of the new regimes of, of conditioning and stuff. But every Monday we do a Monday mile and I've been doing that with my college teams for almost 40 years. And honestly, it's probably, probably doesn't help them any because it's Monday after a Saturday night and whatever, but I know it gets some bad stuff out of their system and, 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 and it's a challenge for them. And, you know, and, and so when we, when we do that, we know that uh, it's 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 hard. We know that it's it's kind of outside the realm of, of reality. But we also know that that they have a. I tell my players that you're not going to believe this, but if you're a senior and it's Monday, next one year from now, when you're sitting in that cubicle in New York City or San Francisco or downtown Denver, you're going to wish you could run a Monday mile. <laughs> and so you know. It, it, you're right. I mean, it, it is what it is. Especially during COVID. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I can't wait to get outside. <laughs> right. They, they're running virtual miles now. <laughs> I'm just thinking back to, you probably did on the treadmill and, and when you were in the physiology class, you probably ended up running about four or five miles. <laughs> exactly. And way and, too and fast. I love, I love my strength coaches too, right? Because I was one, but the idea that you're going to run one mile a week of practice on a Monday, like you're going to be okay. Like the strength exactly. power aspect is not going to like, you know, that's not going to cause you to be a step slower and lose the game. That's not what's going to do. That's, that's for sure. And I go back in 2001, probably the, the greatest thing that could ever happen to me as a dad is we won a national championship with my two sons on the field. And I remember after the game, my son, Trevor was a, was our goalie and uh, was the first team All-American, saved the game in overtime and, and we won in overtime. And so at the end of the game, they bring they bring you into this big media thing. And it's, you know, it's the biggest event in lacrosse, right? There's hundreds of, of reporters and cameras and it's really, it's really pretty cool. And, but they put you up on the stairs with two or three of the players. And I remember one of the reporters saying to my son, Trevor, he goes, why is it that you guys always seem to pull these close games out at the end. And, and Trevor kind of, he was two or three players removed from me. He kind of looked down at me and said, can I tell him? And he goes, I said, tell, you know, I just won a national championship with my two sons. I didn't care what he said. And he goes, he points at me and he goes, he makes things so hard during the week that the games are so much fun for us. <laughs> you know, And so uh, even, even the overtime and high pressure ones. So, you know, you, you, you do some things that are somewhat questionable, but if you keep telling them it's going to be a reward, it's just like our kids in Denver. Now we, when we're running them hard, we tell them, uh, you know, you're at whatever percent oxygen that the kids on the East coast are. So when we play them, you're going to be in better shape. Now, I don't know if that's physiologically true or not, but as long as they believe it, that we're in good shape. I think that speaks to the, that speaks to the interdisciplinarity of sports and performance. And that the unique role that a coach has, like yourself too, even with the strength coach and sports medicine and sports psychologists and nutritionists and the staff, you've got to try to decide with your staff and, and everybody else, we need more technical, we need more mental, we need more conditioning, we need more recovery. You, you know, you've got to make those decisions and everybody else is in their, their silo as a support person. You know, whereas the head coach, especially, you know, with the assistant coaches, 
have to make those challenging calls. That it, and it's a it's not a clear path. It's no, not a it's yes not. or a no. It's not. I think the key to that, Brian, is. You know, and I remember the first meeting I had with my team here at Denver when I got here, I introduced them to our AD, who at the time was Peg Bradley Doppis. She was a phenomenal woman. You know, I just love her to death. And, and anybody that our kids might, the, the, the academic support people, our trainer, our strength coach, our assistant coaches, obviously, and our, our directors of operations. And I said to them, if they say something, it's like me saying something. Because you're right, they have their column. And to them, their column is as important. If we didn't have a strength coach, our guys wouldn't be as successful scoring goals. And that may not look like a direct correlation, but it certainly is. If we didn't have a nutritionist, our guys would be eating McDonald's every day. If we didn't have people helping uh, the academic support people, they might not be in school. All these different things, these pillars of, of parts and the, the job, as you mentioned, the job of the head coach is to, number one, make each one of those pillars important to the, to the young men or young women you're coaching, and then to figure out how the big picture comes together. And then happily or sadly at times, you got to make those tough decisions on what, what's going to happen that day or that moment so that on a Saturday afternoon, you're at peak performance and the kids are doing well and enjoying what they're doing. What do you think has been the differentiating factor for you over so many years in maintaining that level of success? You know, what is it then about the pillars and your bringing it together that you're doing a little bit better than other people, quite frankly? Well, I'm not sure if I'm doing better than other people. I've just been very lucky with the people I've picked for my staff and have great players work at great institutions. But I do think that you gotta, you gotta be mindful of what you're going through personally so that you understand it's just like the the favorite son of a dad who passes away has to give the eulogy you know you you know somebody's got to do it and and so you know i learned something a long time actually from a priest friend of mine at princeton and not a religious thing but i, I remember saying to him god you know tom I, sometimes i feel like i've got to teach lessons to people and i'm certainly no perfect human being here and and he said just remember that you know, you're going to deal with somebody greater than you, you know, whether it be your boss or, you know, when we all pass away, somebody, somebody really greater than us. But right now they're looking to you and you are their only, their only source. So that after a game, you might be distraught about a decision you made. You might have played the wrong goalie. You, you know, whatever might have happened, you might have made a bad techno, technical choice. You're going to feel bad for yourself, about yourself. But you got 50, 18 to 22 year olds looking at to you for guidance. And so I've always gone by the mantra of coaches lose games, players win them. And, and what I mean by that is quickly, they work so hard during the week, take the burden from them. They already feel bad enough about the loss. You know, take the burden from them. They'll get over it. They'll be fine. And by Monday, they'll, they'll come back and they'll be fine. But accept the burden for yourself because you're an adult and you've got you to handle this stuff. And so I think that those, just having that, those kinds of things, being aware, making those people around you just as important as you and, and, and patting them on the back and thanking them every once in a while and, and just doing the little things that make them know that, you know, they are important to you and your program. Because as I always say, look, we're... We're going to get the accolade. I'm going to be the guy on that dance. My, my trainer is not. 
but she may have helped our best player get through a hamstring pull just before the semifinals or the finals. So you just, I think it's being clear to the fact that we're, we're a village and somebody elected me uh, mayor of the village, but we're, we're all in this together. If you could go back in time to when you first started coaching and share a little wisdom with yourself that you've learned over the years, what, what do you think that might be? Well, the, the one thing that I've been sharing lately that, that I, I actually took my own advice, even though I didn't know it was going to be my advice later on, which is whenever I say this name to young people, they look at me like, coach, you're getting old. But I, but I quote Yogi Berra every once in a while, and then Yogi Berra had some great sayings. And I tell him, look it up on Google, and that'll show you. you know, one of the great things Yogi Berra said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. And, and I always, until I got to Princeton, every one of my jobs was three years or less, because I always felt like it was a new challenge. Maybe a little bit more money, too, but the, that wasn't true when I went from high school foot coaching to RIT. I actually took a $3,000 pay cut with three children under the age of four, but thankfully, I have a very supportive wife who thought that was going to be a cool adventure. But I, I, I think that if, if I gave my, my, myself the advice back then would be to, to, number one, be a little easier on the referees. And, and number two, just to realize that at, at the end of the day, you know, the, the, the things you're doing for these young people are so much bigger than whether you won that day or not. You know, I, 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 I tell the story often about when pe people give me so many so much, you know, praise that I don't deserve. You know, I always go back when it gets too overwhelming. I did an interview last week and they're calling me a legend of this and a legend of that. I said, you got to stop because, you know, my last high school coaching experience, I was coaching a girls basketball team. We got off the bus and we scored the first basket. We went in two nothing and we scored the last basket. Well, unfortunately, the other team scored 72 points in between our first and last basket, and we lost 72 to four. And that was the last thing I coached before going up to RIT to coach lacrosse and having this successful lacrosse career. So I always look back at that, and I think of those girls, and you know what? By the time we got back to the school from there, and they knew I was leaving after that game, they took me out. We had a pizza party, you know, so at the end of the day, it was it was all good. And, you know, you just got to remain humble when you when you're having great success and you got to remain positive when you're having great failures and, and try to stay somewhat in the middle if you can. I, I worry about the years to come and, and the next generation of coaches as well that are growing up at a time when they don't see that they, they didn't coach in middle school or high school sports. They just want to go straight to college or pro, you know, make a million bucks and, you know, burn everybody along the way. Or, you know, they really don't have that greater vision and purpose and goal of sport to do something more than just, you know, a transaction. To, so they, they get they get caught up in the spectacle of the media, of the, you know, oh, my gosh, here's another award and another plaque for you. And you're like. We don't, we never talk about that way with anybody else, but we, we extol sometimes coaches and put them up on a pedestal, you know, like, like they're just, you know, monuments to be erected. And we have coaching monuments too. Sure. No. Sure. No, I, I, you're absolutely right. And if, if you don't take that ladder up, if you don't realize, because when you're going up, you, you even if you are, even if you do fi finally become that head coach, if you haven't learned any lessons along the way about, how to handle losing, how to handle injuries to key players, 
how to how to be a good or bad head coach in treating your assistant coaches because you, you you have all those you know all those things how to juggle family you know all those things that you go through that that are part of that if anybody thinks that coaching is just saturday afternoons you know it, 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 they're crazy i mean back in 2001 or 2 i was i was honored to be inducted into the national lacrosse hall of fame and the topic, you know, I had had this saying always was, you know, judge your success by what you had to give up in order to get it. And I changed my speech to judge your success by what others had to give up in order for you to get to get it. Hmm. And, 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 and it, when you started, when I started thinking about that. And I started thinking about my wife and my mom and my dad and my family and all those other coaches and these players who put up with me, you know, you start to get pretty humbled that this thing is, is is huge, and I always laugh now. A lot of coaches use the word family, right? You see it on the back of jerseys or t-shirts, and and what it is, what I think that they're using that for is, it's almost like they've never been in a family. They're they're talking about Christmas, they're talking about New Year's, they're talking about birthdays, all the great great things that happen in life. Yeah, well, what happened when Grandma died, or what happened when you know you had a fight for that the last uh, piece of piece of hamburger on the plate because you had 10 kids in your family or you know what those down times where you were in the in the living room listening to maybe mom and dad have an argument or or whatever or you might have been punished you know and if you don't to me I, that's why you know when we use the word family we we explain it about there's love and there's and there's love and when you love a, a teammate and you're out on that field or that court with him or with he or she you're trying to beat the living daylights out of them because you're going to make them better. And that's the love that you're projecting. Now, when you go in the locker room or you go back to the dorm or you go back to your house, now it's, hey, clean, helping somebody with dinner or cleaning up the dishes or, or putting your arm around a, you know, a teammate that had a rough day. So love is, love is a lot of different things. And, and we try to portray that as best we can. Well, I think we probably have to start wrapping things up, although I wish we could just keep talking for <laughs> for another hour. <laughs> uh, happy to do it anytime, that's for sure. You guys you guys are great. I mean, the, the questions are incisive and 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 they're for me, they you know, sometimes you're dealing with what we're dealing with right now of the COVID and will we have a season and injuries and all this stuff. It's it I'm thankful for for, for you guys to allow me to reminisce a little bit. Well, I appreciate your lessons too. I mean, I haven't thought about what you just said there about what other people have to give up to support you and see you succeed is, is, is a pretty profound statement to make too. And, and to show the transformation that can occur in the power of sport. I mean, a lot of people, I don't think look at it like that. So yeah. Yeah. I, I, thank, oh, thank you. you. So before we wrap up, we always like to ask if you'll share a coach story with you, either good or bad, but one that that impacted you in your in your journey to become the coach you are today. Well, you know, it's I, as you know, when you've been around this long, there there are so many. I always tell that story about my, you know, my my two sons being on the field with me and winning a national championship, and 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 the, and the one about the high school basketball team, the girls, and all that, because I think they're they're poignant to that, but. You know, I, I think as I think back, the ones that, that can tell the story a little bit better are those, the, the, the first meeting at Princeton and the first meeting at Denver when I told young men that were kind of doubtful, kind of had exp bad experiences 
that we would win a national championship and we would be better. And, 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 and they were. And the fact that they learned that through being more disciplined, following rules and doing that stuff kind of made, makes me feel, feel good about, you know, being in this coaching. And, you know, it's, it's one, I will tell you one that we have two sons who played lacrosse for me at Princeton. And then my oldest daughter was a basketball player. And then my youngest daughter was a lacrosse player. She's actually the head women's coach at Kent State. But two quick stories. My oldest daughter played basketball and they only had one coach. And this coach was the most mild-mannered guy you'd ever meet. But he got thrown out of a game. And so all of a sudden he looks in the stands and I knew what was coming. He says, you got to come coach the team. And so I go, I don't want to do this. My daughter's basketball team. I don't know anything about basketball, obviously. And so, so she takes, gets the ball and somebody takes it out, gives it to Courtney. She's dribbling up the court and this kid kind of hacks her on the arm and the ref doesn't call it. And so I'm, I'm literally coaching 20 seconds. And I say to the referee, just sitting like I am now, you know, that's why he, he disagreed with one of your calls. And the referee turns to me and says, now you're out. <laughs> I got thrown out of a game in 20 seconds. It was, it was the most unbelievable thing. And then in 2000, my younger son, Brendan, as I said, my older son, Trevor, was a first-team All-American goalie. He was, he was a great, great player. But my youngest son, Brendan, was a little undersized. He was 5'9", 145 pounds. But in his sophomore year, he, he was a backup attackman. And, and one of his best friends blew his knee out. So Brendan had a start. And here we're in the semifinals against Virginia. 47,000 people in the stands. And I got this group of Virginia people sitting behind me, just screaming the whole game about my, the only reason my son's playing is because he's my son, you know, <laughs> meaning Brendan. The, the, you know. So my daughter, Courtney, who was a little wise, wise potato that she was about 15 at the time or 16. They didn't know she was my daughter. She's just sitting in the stands watching the game. Well, Brendan scores the winning goal against Virginia in the semifinals. And Brian turns around and just, I can't even use my fingers to show you what she did to these people, but she turns around and says, that's my brother and he deserves to play. <laughs> and he just kind of walked off. And so I, I, I still kind of laugh and get choked up about that one because, you know, it's kind of one of those the family things that everybody's involved, you know, everybody's there and, you know, uh, it, they suffer when you lose and they, and they, hopefully enjoy it when you win you're, you're a pretty mellow crowd <laughs> yeah they quieted down for a second or two that sounds like a good thanksgiving dinner That's like one. yeah exactly exactly telling those stories well thank you so much for joining us hopefully we'll have you on again soon we really really appreciate your time thank you oh, thanks megan thanks brian and uh, i really enjoy it so anytime Thanks for listening. Make sure to leave us a five-star review and hit the follow button because there's more sport knowledge on the way. If you're interested in more information or want to engage in further conversation about these and other issues in sport, visit our website at spknmedia.com. To stay updated on all things SPKN, follow us on social media at spknmedia or email us at team at spknmedia.com and we'll be happy to welcome you to the SPKN community.